Hello, this is Helga Edwards, and I'm here with my husband Bob. Today, we will be reading Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 to 30, from the Good News Bible, today's English version. Beginning at verse 1, Jacob continued on his way and went toward the land of the east. Suddenly, he came upon a well out in the fields with three flocks of sheep lying around it. The flocks were watered from this well, which had a large stone over the opening. Whenever all the flocks came together there, the shepherds would roll the stone back and water them. Then they would put the stone back in place. Jacob asked the shepherds, My friends, where are you from? From Haran, they answered. He asked, Do you know Laban, grandson of Nahor? Yes, we do, they answered. Is he well, he asked. He is well, they answered. Look, here comes his daughter Rachel with his flock. Jacob said, Since it is still broad daylight and not yet time to bring the flocks in, why don't you water them and take them back to pasture? They answered, We can't do that until all the flocks are here and the stone has been rolled back. Then we will water the flocks. While Jacob was still talking with them, Rachel arrived with the flock. When Jacob saw Rachel with his uncle Laban's flock, he went to the well, rolled the stone back, and watered the sheep. Then he kissed her and began to cry for joy. He told her, I am your father's relative, the son of Rebekah. She ran to tell her father, and when he heard the news about his nephew Jacob, he ran to meet him, hugged him and kissed him, and brought him into the house. When Jacob told Laban everything that had happened, Laban said, Yes, indeed, you are my own flesh and blood. Jacob stayed there a whole month. Laban said to Jacob, You shouldn't work for me for nothing, just because you are my relative. How much pay do you want? Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah and the younger Rachel. Leah had lovely eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel, so he said, I will work seven years for you if you will let me marry Rachel. Laban answered, I would rather give her to you than to anyone else. Stay here with me. Jacob worked seven years so that he could have Rachel, and the time seemed like only a few days to him, because he loved her. Then Jacob said to Laban, The time is up. Let me marry your daughter. So Laban gave a wedding feast and invited everyone. But that night, instead of Rachel, he took Leah to Jacob, and Jacob had intercourse with her. Laban gave his slave woman Zilpah to his daughter Leah as her maid. Not until the next morning did Jacob discover that it was Leah. He went to Laban and said, Why did you do this to me? I worked to get Rachel. Why have you tricked me? Laban answered, it is not the custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older. Wait until the week's marriage celebrations are over, and I will give you Rachel, if you will work for me another seven years. Jacob agreed, and when the week of marriage celebrations was over, Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban gave his slave woman Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. Jacob had intercourse with Rachel also, and he loved her more than Leah. Then he worked for Laban another seven years.
Here ends our reading of Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 to 30. This passage brings up various questions. Two of the questions that many commentaries address are, Why did Jacob choose Rachel instead of Leah? And why did Laban deceive Jacob? Many of the commentators seem to make an assumption that Jacob preferred Rachel because there must have been something wrong with Leah's appearance. This way of thinking is problematic on two levels. To begin with, it is often based upon questionable translations of verse 17. In numerous English translations, this verse reads as follows. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. That's in the NLT. Leah's eyes were weak in the ESV. Leah had ordinary eyes in the Hallman Christian Standard Bible, but Leah was blear-eyed in the Dewey Rames Bible. In all of these translations, Leah is depicted as having a problem with her eyes. The alleged problem ranges from her eyes being weak to ordinary or bleary. In direct contrast, English versions like the Good News and God's Word translations depict Leah as having lovely or attractive eyes. Why such a discrepancy and which reading is accurate? One of the oldest biblical manuscripts of this passage is found in the Aramaic Targum of Onkelos. The language of this manuscript matches Aramaic fragments of the Bible found among the Dead Sea Scrolls suggesting that the Targum Onkelos was written at about the same time. In this manuscript, Leah's eyes are described as pleasant or beautiful. The same word is used in other ancient Aramaic manuscripts. It is used once in the Song of Solomon 1.5, which reads, I am dark yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. And again in Genesis 12.11, where Abraham addresses Sarah saying, I know what a beautiful woman you are. In ancient Hebrew texts of this passage, the word rakot is used to describe Leah's eyes. This word often depicts someone who is kind, tender, delicate, or compassionate. It is used, for example, in Deuteronomy 28.56 to describe women who were noted for being the most sensitive or compassionate people in their community. It is used again in the following prophecy against Babylon found in Isaiah 47.1. O daughter of Babylonia, never again will you be the lovely princess, tender and delicate. It is used in Proverbs 15.1, which reads, A gentle answer turns away wrath. And in Ezekiel 17.22, it is used metaphorically to describe a tender branch that will be planted in the ground to form a new tree. First Chronicles 29 verse 1 uses the same word to describe King Solomon as a child when he was young and tender. In Deuteronomy 20 verse 8, those with tender hearts were told to stay home rather than participate in an upcoming battle. In this context, the word tender did have a negative connotation in that it was the opposite of being strong and ready for battle. A negative connotation for the Hebrew word rakot 
can only be found in this type of context. In light of this ancient evidence, where did the notion emerge that Leah's eyes were somehow unappealing? In Greek, at least two words can be used to indicate that someone or something was tender. One of these words conveys the idea of gentleness and compassion. The other conveys the idea of being fragile, weak, or sickly. Greek translations of this passage chose the word for tender, that means sick or weak, not kind and lovely. With this decision, the Greek manuscripts departed from the meaning most commonly found in Hebrew and Aramaic texts. Latin translations amplified the Greek notion by referring to Leah's eyes as bleary or inflamed, and then English translations followed. A second problem can be found in commentaries of this verse that assume Jacob rejected Leah as a potential spouse because there was something wrong with her. This assumption demonstrates what psychologists refer to as an external locus of control. Someone with an external locus of control imagines that a person's behavior is dictated primarily or exclusively by outside forces. In other words, if Jacob did not wish to marry Leah, there must have been something wrong with her. This kind of thinking overlooks the truth of a well-known proverb. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In actual fact, what people do or do not find attractive often says more about them than anything else. If someone prefers the color blue, for instance, this does not mean that red must be hideous. Any number of internal factors may predispose a person to like or dislike someone or something's appearance. People often overlook the role of these internal factors because these factors operate on an automatic and subconscious level. Attraction occurs when external environmental cues match our internal preferences, and these preferences can vary widely from person to person. It is also important to recognize that emotional preferences do not directly cause our behavior. Finding someone attractive, for example, does not cause us to pursue that person as a potential romantic interest. That is a decision that may or may not be made on the basis of any number of other relevant factors. In the case of Rachel and Leah, Jacob's decision to marry Rachel was not dictated by external forces alone. Also, there is nothing in the oldest available manuscript evidence to suggest that Leah's eyes were unappealing. Jacob likely found Rachel attractive because something about her matched his internal preferences. He then chose to act on those preferences by seeking to marry her. The second question we wish to explore is, why did Laban deceive Jacob by giving Leah to him in marriage under false pretenses? When Jacob questions Laban about the deception, this is Laban's response. Quote, it is not the custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older. Unquote. In other words, Laban explains that he deceived Jacob in order to honor a local custom. Genesis chapter 29 is permeated with references to ancient customs. It was customary, for instance, for people to marry blood relatives. 
for men to have more than one wife, for men to marry women who were sisters, and for people to own slaves. It was also customary for fathers to give away their daughters to become other men's wives. In this cultural framework, women would exchange the authority of a father for the authority of a husband. These women were then expected to bear male children so that the man's name and possessions could pass down to his oldest male descendant. It is important to recognize that this part of the Bible is teaching us about the history of the Jewish people. It has too often been the case that the customs of these historical cultures have been confused with the will of God. Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, married his half-sister Sarah. Jacob ended up marrying Rachel and Leah. Both women were close relatives, and they were also each other's sister. According to the law, later given to Moses in the 18th chapter of Leviticus, none of these customs were a reflection of God's will. Leviticus 18.6, for example, bluntly states, Do not have sexual intercourse with any of your relatives. Leviticus 18.11 specifically prohibits relations with a half-sister. And Leviticus 18.18 states, Do not take your wife's sister as one of your wives. These laws directly contradict the practices of Abraham and Jacob concerning their wives, Sarah, Rachel, and Leah. The New Testament writings of the Apostle Paul also highlight that the customs and practices of Abraham, Jacob, and Laban were not a reflection of God's will. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 and 12, male leaders of the early church were prohibited from having more than one wife. A particular oral tradition from the rabbinical school of Shammai permitted polygamy for Jewish men, but the authors of the New Testament did not. In 1 Corinthians 7.21, slaves were encouraged to gain their freedom, if it was at all possible for them to do so. And in Galatians 3.28, the social inequalities that existed between Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, women and men, were nullified in Christ. Polygamy, incest, slavery, and patriarchy were all cultural customs in the history of the ancient world. They are all described in the Bible, but they were never prescribed as a reflection of God's will. Addressing the early Christians who lived in the city of Rome, the Apostle Paul wrote, Do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We find that in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. The customs of a fallen world are not to be confused with the will of God. As followers of Jesus Christ, may God's Holy Spirit continue to transform our thinking so that we do not confuse the cultural backdrop of the Bible with the Bible's message. <laughs>